Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Mind Shifters Radio with the Forgiveness Doctor, Dr. Michael Rice. I'm Jeannie Rice, your co-host. We also have co-hosts Dr. Tim Hayes and Michelle Pichet. We will share with you the wisdom of the first century Aramaic internal process of forgiveness. We offer tools and support five days a week. We will support you in building a solid foundation within yourself to live in pure love in Aramaic, Brachma. Michael is the author of the book, Why Is This Happening to Me Again? For more information about the forgiveness process, please visit www.whyagain.org. And now, welcome to the show, Mind Shifters Radio. Hi, and welcome to Mind Shifters Radio. Today is Wednesday, August the 23rd, 2023, and Dr. Tim's going to be out for the rest of the week. He asked me to play Pierre Pradavan from uh, uh, May, earlier May of this year, and so that's what I'm going to play. I did speak to him earlier, and he got home last night, and he said, the doctor said everything went well, and he's resting, and uh, he is being taken care of, so... Uh, enjoy the show. Pierre Pratervan studied at the universities of Geneva, Bern, and the University of Ann Arbor before receiving a doctorate in sociology from La Sorbonne University in Paris. A true world citizen, Pierre has labored most of his life for social justice, living, working, studying in, or visiting 40 countries on every continent. From his Geneva home, Pierre is now active as a writer, speaker, and life coach, helping people live simpler yet richer, more contented lives. He provides personal development tools that empower attendees to strengthen their internal anchors and advance on their spiritual path. Pierre is an independent celebrant for weddings, burials, and other events. He's the author of more than 20 books, including The Gentle Art of Blessing, 365 Blessings to Heal Myself and the World, and his most recent book, The Gentle Art of Spiritual Discernment. And I'm excited to spend some time and let you talk to our audience about your new book and and, and what brought you to, to write it. So unless you have any questions for me, I'll just take a breath and get centered and we'll act like we just met and I'll say hello and, and launch into asking you about your new book. Okay, well, uh, I was brought up in a very strict uh, Calvinist family and church, and everything was so rigorous, and the whole the whole theology was dominated by this concept of sin, or so it seemed to me. Uh, this wasn't so much my father. My father was a wonderful, wonderful man, whom of whom I have kept the most incredible positive souvenir, but it was the church and the parish and, and all that stuff. And in 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 the high school, in the college, there was a, a biblical group that was, oh, so closed. And we were praying for our fallen brethren, you know, all those who was, weren't in the Bible group. <laughs> These were fallen brethren. I mean, it was so pathetic. 
And then I did two years theology and completely quit the whole stuff. And for 10 years, I, I wandered in sort of spiritual desert. And I came to Ann Arbor to prepare my doctorate. And there I was going to three different groups, the, the Quakers, and uh, a remarkable group that few people remember. It was called the Word of God. And I don't know if you remember, in the 70s and 80s, there was an incredible, no, the, the, yes, the late, late 60s and early 70s, a, a tremendous revival in Christian churches all around the United States. And, uh, and this petered off. But it started with four young students at the University of Michigan praying that the Spirit would defend, descend on the campus. And when I arrived, it was one of the largest uh, student movements on campus. And Mich Michigan, the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, was a very large university. And when I left, it was the largest student movement on campus. And it was just amazing. I remember hearing somebody speaking in tongues in that, in that movement. And I can still see the person, hear what he says in tongues. And it's the most beautiful music I've ever, ever heard in my life. Ever. The most beautiful thing I've ever heard in my life. And immediately after, somebody translated what he had said into normal English. And it was fabulous. And then I started going also to a spiritual healing movement. And I was a total hypochondriac at the, at the stuff. At the, at the time, I'd grown up in a family where the family doctor was a sort of little, little god and totally dependent on medicine. And I was hearing these testimonies of students, you know, breaking their, breaking their leg and walking quite normally after three days without anything on their leg whatsoever. And these were amazing testimonies. And I, started going to this group regularly and then belonged to the movement for a good many years. But it was, it was something called Christian Science. And uh, I stayed a long time because of the healing and had myself very many amazing healings. But I left finally because it was so closed and they had the sense of being the highest revelation in history. And boy, that is so terrible such a weight. So I left and then I I uh, I won't say wandered but I didn't belong to any movement of any sort but I was still a very keen spiritual seeker. And now I think I found my my own practice of spirituality. But I've started in the last two years attending the Quaker group in in Geneva, because I just so love staying one hour in silence in a group. It's not at all the same as having silence in your own room in the morning. I have a lot of that. But silence in a group has a kind of substance that I love dearly. But I'm, I'd say I'm my own spiritual seeker. I cannot... Uh, declare a sort of
statement of faith as many big religions have. But I had one, I had two experiences, I'd say mystical experiences, that are the basis of my spirituality. And I, I don't know if I shared them in my earlier uh, talks with you. One was on a plane, this experience of love. Well, maybe I'll, 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 I'll re repeat them in any case, because as you ask me what my spiritual practice is, this is the basis. I was coming back from Africa, uh, where I was one of the co-founders of what was in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, the, the largest grassroots peasant movement in the whole of Africa, called the 6S movement in the Sahel. And I was one of the founding members, and I enjoyed the, our, the meetings of the um, governing body, of which I was a member. And uh, the last day of the meeting, I caught dysentery. Now, at the beginning, it's not a problem. If you, if you don't take care of it, it can become serious. But I was working with my metaphysical formulas, my statements, as I usually did when I had any physical problem instead of running to the doctor. And it seemed to have calmed down in the evening, but the next day going to the airport, it started over, over again. And on the plane, I was sitting next to a young unaccompanied boy studying my, my mantras, my texts, my prayers, all the things I usually do in, in such cases. And the stewardess taking care of the little boy was so loving. I'm just a, one who thought she was his mother. She always came to check if he was okay. And at one moment she came to speak to him in especially, I'd say, tender way. And I felt for this woman an incredible gratitude, which some suddenly became literally a cosmic gratitude. And then I had an out-of-body experience. I'm sure you know what that is. Yes. I was no longer in the plane. I was in a space where there was only the most incredible, unconditional love. Love was the only power, the only law, the only presence, the only substance, the only reason of everything. And it was just phenomenal. I don't know how, how long it lasted because I was out of time, out of space. And the most wonderful thing is that Pierre Pradovan had completely disappeared. I had no sense whatsoever of having an ego, a little Swiss passport and all that. I was just one with this incredible love, which was the solution to all problems. And then suddenly I came back in the plane. I felt something move in my lower stomach and my entrails, and the dysentery disappeared in a matter of seconds. But the real healing was my vision of the world. And the next, the next uh, mystical experience, the second one, was just a couple of years ago. I was reading a book by the American mystic uh, Joel Goldsmith. I'm sure you've heard of him. Yes. And he was a very prolific writer and speaker at the time he was alive. Traveled all over the world. And I was reading, rereading for the fourth time his book, simply called uh, Spiritual Healing, the art, the art of Spiritual Healing. 
And there's one place in the book where he speaks of uh, he he'd, uh, received 30, 35 calls for assistance the evening before and uh, that morning, and he was in his office in town, and he constantly had patients all day long, including between 12 and noon and 1 o'clock. And he looked into his uh, agenda, and for the first time ever, he did not have one single appointment between 12 and 1 o'clock. And he thought, oh, it's up there that they've organized this, you know, that the divine will to organize this. Why? For what reason? And he thought, well, it's just to plunge into silence. And he plunged into silence. And when he came out of it, an hour later, he received calls over the next moments from almost every single person who asked for help in the past uh, past uh, uh, the present afternoon and evening and uh, they'd, they'd almost every single one had been healed and he did not work for one single one of them he just went into the silence and, yes and so he explains this and uh, it touched me so deeply. I thought, oh, I would so like to get into this quality of silence. And so I just plunged into silence and had another amazing experience. Suddenly I was in a space of just perfect harmony and joy and beauty, lots of greenery and just quotes heaven or perfection, whatever you want to call it. And of course, (coughs) again, the ego had completely disappeared. And then it was just this sense of all-pervading harmony saying, Pierre, that's where it really is at. That's real reality. And I came back, I don't know how long later, and uh, and I've just stayed with this ever since. So that is, I'd say these two experiences are my basic sense of spirituality, that everything is governed by love, and love is the fundamental law of the universe both in general terms and in individual terms. And a sense that behind the material veil of things, there is only perfect harmony. And Joel Goldsmith was an amazing healer because he says that when he started working for something, for someone, let's say he receives a phone call, the first thing he does is forget the name of the person who called him and the problem they were calling about. And he just plunged into the silence and contact a sense of perfection and people were healed. He had and, that is, and that is very similar to what the, you were doing for years with your Christian science work. 
Yes, but I didn't do it for other people. Right. At all. Right. But you were, that's what, what you were doing for yourself. And I was doing it for myself. But then the movement was very narrow and exclusive. And that's what I couldn't put up with. And that's why I left. Joel Goldsmith didn't belong to any movement. Right. He created his own, his own teaching called The Infinite Way. And he's got a book called The Infinite Way and, and many other books of his that anyone can find on internet. But what I loved is that he said he completely forgot the name of the person who called him and what the problem was. And just <coughs> went into this sense of perfection where everything is already okay. And contact, contacted that that level of being so concretely that automatically the person was healed. I, he's the only person I, I mean, I study, I, I receive every day, I receive text of his on internet. I say, uh, I don't belong to any movement, religion of any sort, but I do follow and study the works of because he speaks very strongly to me. That's all. And you decided to write this book to help others, if they're going out on their own spiritual path, to have some kinds of general guidelines, the things, pitfalls to avoid and tools they might use. And one of the uh, things that strikes me is that you talk about the um, spiritually transmitted diseases. <laughs> I thought that was quite cute. <laughs> And uh, and and they're basically the the pitfalls to watch out for. Absolutely, absolutely. But uh, the main thing I think I'd like to say is that there there is no rigid path, no sick, fixed path. Religions are all every single religion is a human construction, a social construction. Jesus never didn't leave any guidelines for any kind of structure. And when, I, when one studies the history of the church, one can see how the, the church, uh, until the third century, was, there was no really rigid organization of any sort. And then uh, in any movement, you have people who take positions of power, of guidance, of dominance. And uh, the early members of these early churches thought they would like to organize this a little more rather than having little groups here and there. And the church developed, and they developed their own criteria of who could become a member and who could not, which had nothing to do, or very, very little, with the teachings of Jesus. So churches were a purely human construction, and I say this was Great respect, my father, bless him, was for a quarter of a century the General Secretary of the World Presbyterian Alliance, as it was called at that time. And he visited churches all around the globe. And uh, he wrote, he was amazing. Wherever he was, he would write a handwritten email letter back to the family. And... Uh, this was amazing because 
it had deep impact on me. You know, I, I was raised in a nice little bourgeois family in suburban Geneva with a lovely garden and great peace and no problems of any sort. Uh, and uh, he'd send these letters. And I remember, as of today, our mother always used to read them standing up in the kitchen when we came back from school. And uh, I still remember the letter he wrote from Mexico City saying he'd been in a part of the city where no girl above 12 was a virgin because they were all prostituting themselves to earn money for families which lived in utter and dire poverty. And wow, that was one of my greatest awakenings in life, realizing that didn't everybody didn't, didn't live didn't in... Didn't live the way you did, yeah. ...Hampered Little, living in sweet little Geneva, peaceful Switzerland. No, some people had a hell of a life. And I think these letters of my father, of our father, woke, awoke me to the world and made me... There were the first buddings of becoming a world citizen. Which you've certainly done in uh, over 40 countries and... Exactly. And, uh, you know, five or more continents. In very different cultures. I mean, 12 years in Muslim cultures, in Arabic culture, black African culture, which are very, very totally different from our nice little middle-class Switzerland. So I'm grateful. And I've lived, lived in the United States. Uh, I lived 10 years in England. And these are very, very different cultures, too. And as you're talking about in the book, you decided to write this book because uh, you've become more and more aware, and without you know actual hard statistics, but it's your awareness that fewer people are flocking to the churches, and um, more and more people are pursuing their spiritual path on their own. Exactly. I mean, it's so evident that, at least in, this, in Europe, the churches are more and more empty. And I, I believe, as I say in the book, that sooner or later, organized religions will disappear with the possible uh, exception of uh, Judaism for very specific reasons, because it is totally tied to a, a people and a territory. And maybe Islam will be one of the large religions which will probably resist Longest, I think. But by and large, I think we are evolving, as everybody's aware, towards ever higher levels of consciousness. And one, one will be that nobody can tell you what right living is. You are the only one to be able to find it out for yourself. If it's authentically you. Now, many people live chained to beliefs and structures their whole life because they haven't been able to free themselves from these structures. Well, and, you know, what, what you said about your upbringing was similar to mine in, in the way that I had a very nice family, very loving parents, and my parents and my grandparents were all of the same 
Roman Catholic religion. So there was a whole level at which the only thing I had been exposed to was that Roman Catholic religion. It's like what you were talking about with the Christian science movement. Um, the only people they allow in their churches are the Christian science speakers that are on a circuit. And, um, exactly. and, and, and they, it, it gets to be, you know, this restrictive thing. The, uh, inbred. The, totally the, inbred. The, the, the Roman Catholic movement was so rigid when I was growing up that they, they told us, don't even read the Bible because you'll misinterpret it. Just go to the priest and ask questions. And I remember several times in school, I would go and ask the nuns and they'd say, oh, we can't answer that. We have to ask Father. So it's, it was all this very narrow funneling of this one kind of a mindset. So by the time I went to college, I all I knew of basically was uh, the Roman Catholic Church. I didn't know anything about the Jewish people or their religion. I didn't know anything about the Muslims. And so up until that time, even though I was very much um, – desiring to be a good person and to be in alignment with whatever was divine, I had some very, very narrow definitions for what that might be. And boy, did it explode once an education arrived. And when that happens, um, I think it's a wonderful thing to have a book like yours to give someone some, some you know, like yeah, the guardrail. Guidelines. Yeah, they are, they're just the guardrails on, on the highway, right? They don't tell you which exit to get off of, but they keep That's you from going off a bridge or, you know, cool. in some horrible danger. And um, and some of the tools that you mentioned, um, you know, I, I, I think that lately the word intention has been a big theme that's come across in the work that I've been doing on the internet show and in the, our support groups. And you've got a wonderful story about intention with uh, Mohan. Yes. Can you share a little bit about your thoughts about intention and how that story weaves into that? Well, for me, uh, my intention is just to be loved one day, just to express love in everything, in every thought. I have a little saying I go over quite a few times during the day. Creator, bless my mind that every one of my thoughts may come from love. Bless my ears that I hear everything through the channel, the listening of love. Bless my eyes that all I see may be seen with love and bathed in love. Bless my mouth that my every thought, every, every word come from love. Bless my heart that I may give and receive love. Bless my hands that everything I touch feels love. And everything I do is done with love. And bless my feet that I may walk with love and peace upon the earth. That's uh, something I like to repeat during the day. And I'd say it's the, the summary of my spirituality. 
It helps. Not, I believe, it's not I believe in this or that. It's applied love. For me, that's and, the only and, thing. And it helps you keep your intention of course. focused. Of course. And, and again, I, I like to repeat that I'm a, I'm a student and still in the in the in the first grade primary school of spiritual path, a little learner. But what I have learned, learned has given such joy and depth to my life. I want to continue. Well, and as you talk about in the book, the more you learn, the more you realize how little you know. Yes. That there's, you know, great expanses like the when you have an experience like you did on the plane or like you did when um, reading the Joel Goldsmith work, you realize there aren't even any words for what you've tapped into and just exactly. touched, you know. Exactly. Exactly. And so intention is so important that um, – can you relay the story of uh, Mohan and Sarala? Oh, it's one of my favorite, favorite stories. Uh, thanks for asking me, Tim. Uh, there was a seeker in India who was called Mohan, who worked. Finally, he, for many years, he uh, sought for a teacher that could really get him on the road and finally he found one and he stayed with him many years working in his fields in the master's fields keeping the cows in the day as was the, was the tradition and studying at the feet of the master when he when uh, he's in the evening time right in the evening and one day the master passed on and uh, Mohan hit the road again, uh, looking for right teacher. And one day he arrives in a village completely exhausted and famished and practically collapses. And the village villagers take care of him, putting back him into big sh- into good shape. And as they had no Brahmin in the village, they asked Mohan if he would stay in the village, that they would take care of him and that he would be able to teach the young people. And Mohan is delighted with this proposition and he does just that. And there was young, one young man in the village called Sarala who had decided that Mohan was the teacher he was seeking for for his whole life. And he would do all the errands he could to for Mohan, and he would always be prowling around Mohan's hut to the to the point that it really irritated Mohan, who thought Sarah was a rather simplistic fellow. He'd never get very far spiritually. And unknown, uh, unbeknownst to to Mohan, Sarah slept on the doorstep of uh, Mohan's. Uh, hot because what he was awaiting was the famous mantra. You know, the mantra in India is something very, very important on the spiritual path. And everybody, every serious student receives the mantra 
from his from his teacher. And Mohan wakes up in the middle of the night and feels the need to go to the toilet, which was just in the fields, of course. And his foot hits Sarala on on the doorstep. And uh, Sarala wakes up and jumps up. And Mohan, really irritated, say, Go out of the village. You. First, you. first thing he says, Always you. Always you. Go out of the village and don't come back until I call you. And Sarala is quite convinced that the always you is the famous mantra he'd been waiting. And he runs out of the village, his heart singing with joy, always you, always you. And he travels for days, for weeks, for months, for years with nothing else in his mind but always you, always you, always you. And one day he arrives uh, in a village where a widow has just lost her only son, a teenager. And in India, the situation of women, of widows, has always been very difficult. And uh, especially if they had no other children, this was her only son. And they'd put a pyre, I think you say a pyre, where you burn people. Right. And uh, he was on top of the pyre and uh, and Sarah arrives, and the people feel something so special in this man. He radiates a, a light, a gentleness, and they ask him, could you, could you pray for the resurrection of this boy? And Sarah says, look, I've never re- resurrected anyone, but I can repeat the mantra my teacher, Mohan, taught me, and... Unbeknownst to Sarala, he'd made a circuit of thousands of kilometers in India. It was just a few miles from his home village. And so he settled at the foot of the pyre and just plunges into this always you, always you. And suddenly the boy sits up, totally surprised to be on this pyre, and he climbs down and the whole village shouts miracle, miracle. And they all bring a few pennies, a necklace, a piece of jewelry, a tiny piece of gold, whatever they had, and put it at the feet of, of Sarala. And Sarala says, my friend, it is not me you must think. It is my teacher, Mohan, who taught me this mantra. And, as I said a moment ago, the village was very close to Mohan's village, and the villagers ran off to Mohan, and they all uh, arrive at the same time at his house, and they're all shouting and explaining, and Mohan can't understand anything. And he says, all he gets is that one of his students supposedly had raised uh, someone from the dead, right? Uh, he knew perfectly well he was totally incapable himself of doing anything like that, and he couldn't think of any one of his students 
would ever be capable of this. And so he asked the villagers, what is the student's name? They say Sarala. And suddenly, one remembers he had a student years ago called Sarala, and he tells them, go and tell Sarala that I'm awaiting him. And the, the, the villagers all run back. Sarala had left. He was on the road, but it was very easy to catch him up. And villagers tell Sarala, your teacher, Mohan, are calling for him. Right. And you remember, Mohan told, told right. Sarala, never come Don't back after <laughs> Oh, for him, it was the perfect day, the day of illumination. His teacher had called him back. And he rushes, well, he hurries back to Mohan and falls at the feet of Mohan. And Mohan gently raises him up. And he says, the villagers tell me that you raised a young boy from the dead. Oh, master, I did nothing but repeat the mantra you told me, always you. And suddenly, Mohan remembers that famous night. He hears <laughs> yell in anger when he trips on Sarala, always you, go from village and never come back until I call you. And here he was. And in moment of Incredible humility, maybe the first in his life, on falls at the feet of Sarala and looks up to his face and says, Master, teach me. That's my favorite spiritual story. All about intention. Yes. And it's a, it's, it's a beautiful tie-in to your little prayer of bless my thoughts bless my ears, bless my eyes and my mouth, because if I'm choosing to see through the eyes of love and to hear everything through the filter of love, that's essentially what Sarala did. Exactly. Well, and the book has some wonderful stories. It's a, it's a rather brief book for your standards, but it is a, um, a, a beautiful uh, collection of these stories. What's another part of the book that you'd like to highlight for us as we talk about the tools and or the, the spiritually transmitted diseases or? Well, uh, I, you know, I coined this terms uh, spiritually transmitted diseases uh, because there are so many of them. You see, we are in a world as never before. So many teachings and paths and in all areas. And Byron Katie has said so rightly, 40 years ago, that the main problem in our society is not war or hunger or fighting in groups or political dissent. It's confusion. And I feel that I, this, this is a woman I admire greatly. I followed a workshop with her once in Geneva, and she's a, really, for me, the, I don't know if one says in English, is a great dame 
personal development in the United States, one of the greatest figureheads for me. And uh, that statement is so, so true of our world. That's why I, and so many people, are confused in all areas, including spirituality. And that's why I, one of the reasons I wrote this book is to give very simple guidelines to people so as that they could find their own spiritual path. For some, it would mean joining a movement, and for others, it will just be, like it has been for me now for years, following their own spiritual intuition. But of course, I spend a lot of time, I spend every morning, normally at least an hour and a half, preparing spiritually for the day. And then constantly through the day, trying to remind myself to come back to love, as in the little story I told a little moment ago. So, uh, for me, it's, it's so simple. True, true spirituality is so, so simple. And when you read the gospel. You know, Jesus didn't develop any kind of theology of any sort. He gave very simple statements, you know, and left us incredible promises. But always so simple. And that simplicity can help as an antidote to your confusion. Absolutely. Of course. And the big thing that what I get from your book it comes across so clearly is that and you you talk about how the religions are primarily based on looking outside yourself to some kind of an authority figure exactly. and, and that what you're recommending is kind of a, a series of guidelines people can use to find their way in exactly. to the guidance that's going to come from their own heart center to be their own authority and when i say to be their own authority I'm not pampering the ego, because this because this happens when the ego has been reduced to its smallest dimension, and then when you become your own authority, it's not to the ego of Pierre Pradovan, for instance, it's to the highest vision that Pierre has, and that is one of infinite love. Yeah, and you talk about that as and necessarily feelings-based, not yes. thought-based. Oh, absolutely, because I was, I was brought up in a religion we had to believe things this way and that. And it was all on the level of mind. And uh, nothing on the level of the heart. I hardly ever heard the word heart pronounced. And for me, it is a center of authentic spirituality. It is in the heart, not in the brain. So two things. Can you adjust your camera a little bit so we can see the full facial right. expression? And then uh, can you just get centered for here and, and think if we're running uh, close to the end of our time, what other point or a couple points do you want to make uh, to try and uh, um, 
kind of whet people's appetite for this book, the uh, the gentle art of discernment for your spiritual. Well, it's I would say I live more and more in a permanent sense of gratitude. Not only because I live in a peaceful country, I have a lovely little, little apartment in a beautiful little garden. You know, I have, I earn a very, very modest income, but it's sufficient. That's a choice I made. It's sufficient to live the simple life, which has been my ideal for close to 60 years now. And uh, I find constantly opportunities for gratitude and expressing appreciation. So often I would say to self-good in a supermarket, thank her for that, her smile or her gentleness. I thank the bus driver for having driven us safely. And people are not used to that. And uh, I remember a sales uh, lady to whom I said something especially nice. I, I, I don't remember exactly, but she said that in 30 years of, in the job, nobody has ever said something like that to me. So a simple word of appreciation is just so, so limitless. And you don't know what it can mean to someone. And it can become a sort of thought, trying to find opportunities to, to, uh, to express appreciation. And of course, it always comes from the heart and never from the mind. So I live in, in constant gratitude because, I, I mean, really, hour by hour, a little while I was in my garden, I had lunch in my garden, and I felt such gratitude because it's a beautiful day, and everything was quiet and green, and just, you can invent so many opportunities to say thank you and to feel grateful. Well, and I, I hear in my mind, as I've had several times over the years, many, many times over the years, when I talk about that or somebody else talks about that, that the ego or the other uh, chattering mind wants to say, well, yeah, but that's because you have this beautiful apartment and this simple life and it's peaceful. And yet you have firsthand experience with some dark night of the ego. Um, you know, a lot of people call it dark night of the soul, but from the way of mastery, it talks about it's not really the dark night of the soul. It's the awakening of the soul, and it's the dark night of the ego. Exactly. And and you talk about people like uh, Roger McGowan and how he's had uh, really extraordinarily challenging and abusive challenging and abusive situations, and he's learned the benefit of practicing gratitude and your exactly. blessing practice. Exactly. So it's not an empty thing that is useful only if my life is going well. It's a very powerful tool for the darkest times as well. Exactly, exactly. How did, you, how did you come to... i dark times like everybody. And I mean, you talk about that some in this book. 13 years ago, I was crazy enough to leave the most wonderful woman in the world, my wife, 
and I went through absolute total hell. For four years, I was in a deep depression. And today, I have gained very good, warm relations with this this person who is the person I admire most on the whole planet because she runs the foundation for women and children at 83. She's running world campaigns. It's just incredible. So I say, all I can say now for everything is thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. How did you first uh, come to know of Roger McGowan? How did you get involved with him? Well, it's very simple. In 1996, one of his correspondents in Zurich contacted me at the suggestion of a friend of hers. And I don't know at all why she contacted me. I don't know why this gentleman gave her my name. I'd never heard of Roger McGowan. I'd never had anything to do with the death penalty. And uh, the Texas Department of Criminal Justice had just fixed a date of execution to put him to death. And she'd been corresponding with him for years. And she thought, that cannot be. That cannot be. And... uh, she she started uh, looking for people to contribute to the hiring of a lawyer. Stories she told me touched me so deeply, I put a, a few thousand, I think $3,000 into her account so that we could hire a lawyer. And she managed to put off the date of execution, but not the death penalty. And I started corresponding with Roger because the story she told me moved me so much. And immediately our correspondent correspondence took on a very special light for me. And after two, three years, I thought, I can't keep these letters for myself. They belong to the cultural heritage of humanity. And I have an extraordinary publisher, really amazing man, who's never refused a single manuscript I've presented him in 25 years. And he accepted to publish a book that was totally out of anything he'd ever published. And the book was a real success. People started sending in money. One woman sent in $50,000 just from reading that book. So deeply she was touched. Is that book the messages of life from death row? Exactly. And uh, so we were able to hire uh, a good lawyer who uh, got him off death row. And because he was able to, the lawyer was able to challenge the death penalty. And, uh, And now he's in another prison. And he's changing a prison of 2,500 inmates. And over the years, this book has had such an incredible impact. I received some time ago a letter from from Thailand, from an African inmate in the Bangkwang Central Prison, which is the worst prison in, in Thailand. And he'd been incarcerated there also, as he tells me, for a crime he had not committed. And he was at the depth of depression, the depth of hell. And now tell me, by what miracle 
we find Rogers, finds Rogers' book in French, in Benguan Central Prison in Thailand. Only the somebody up there, as I say in French, on the first floor would be able to explain. And that book totally transformed him. Pulled him out completely out of his state of depression. And he wrote to me, and now he is, has different correspondence. And uh, there's been a sort of amnesty. And a friend of mine who corresponds with him still now told me he's just out of prison. But what was impact, amazing was the impact of Roger's book. And I see Roger, I've been visiting him every single year since 1999. And he's become one of my two closest friends. And a spiritual teacher to many. Absolutely, and to me also. A spiritual example. So when we first met in the early century, he used to say, Pierre, you, you pulled me forward, and now... The roles have been reversed for quite a few years. He pulls me and many, many others. Wonderful. And, and of I course, you, you mentioned him in, uh, I'm not sure if you mentioned him in the Gentle Art of Blessing, but certainly in uh, the 365 Blessings to Heal Myself yes. in the World. Yes. And um, and all three of these books, the Gentle Art of Blessing, 365 Blessings to Heal Myself in the World, and your newest book on spiritual, The Gentle Art of Spiritual Discernment is uh, due to be released um, in July of this year, 2023. So um, I'm really looking forward to that. And, uh, and, and the next few books you write <laughs> as your moves to. That will come. My, my next book as a matter of fact, I started this morning, will be uh, Living Without Judging. I'm writing it in French. I don't know if I'll find an American publisher, but it's a topic that's very close to my heart. And one that I live completely, I've literally without judging. Because I found, and it's so simple once you found the, not the trick, but the the a tool. It's a tool. The tool. Uh, the tool is to realize that every single person, including Trump and Putin, are at their highest level of judgment, given the circumstances of their life, their past history, and everything. So when you really see that, well, you you cannot judge anymore. Well, and. Uh especially when you have some insight and you have some experience to, you know, those, you said out of body experience or those spiritual experiences, when you get an inkling that there is so much more going on here than you have any idea about, then you realize at a new level how silly it is to judge because, because you, you have nothing really to, to base it on except uh, this very limited sphere of, of perception. Exactly. And I'm excited to hear about that book. We've been talking about this idea of judgment. I was interviewing a young woman who's written several, a couple of really nice books about uh, her 
ending her addictive process and putting together a healthy, vibrant life. And in the second interview, I found myself talking about this addiction we have to judging and how um, for every other addiction, we realize whatever the drug that we really need to abstain from it. And so uh, what would it be like for me to abstain from judging? <laughs> We're talking about that. What kind of tools can I put in place to help myself recognize when I've judged and then choose to release it? Yes. So I'm, I'm, I will look forward to your book with uh, great relish. Good. Well, um, have you got a closing blessing for us that we can, uh, we can send people off with, uh, one of your favorite I'll compose one now. I don't have, you know. I was thinking. Uh, I was thinking. Do you remember the the one for the 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 blessing you have in the book for spiritual seekers? No, I don't remember. You know, out of three hundred and sixty-five blessings, I can't. <laughs> well, so if you would be so kind, uh, could you compose a blessing for us to end today? I bless you in your listening the guidance from above. I bless you in the deep sincerity of your quest for finding your own spiritual path. I, I bless you in your deep understanding that whatever the path you choose, it starts by loving yourself unconditionally. Whatever the part, be it a special brand of Sufism or some esoteric Christian or Buddhist branch of this or that movement, before anything else, your part, your first part, is one of learning to love yourself. Because when you love yourself, you let go of so many weights that could hamper your search for your own spiritual path, your own spiritual teaching. May you be blessed, infinitely blessed, as you are on your path. There we are. Well, thank you so much. And may you be blessed in your path and your intention and your uh, prolific writing, which has blessed us all. I am, Tim. Thank you for this moment of sharing. Goodbye. Thank you. Blessings. Well, that was beautiful. I hope that you enjoyed it as much as I did. And I have just ordered the book that he was talking about, um, his latest book, Method, um, Gentle Art of Spiritual Discernment, A Guide to Discovering Your Personal Path. And it is out now, and I just ordered it from Amazon. So I hope you enjoyed that. I welcome you to the second hour of Mindshifters Radio. Today is Wednesday, August the 23rd, 2023. And our call-in number is 563-999-3581.
press 1 and that puts you into queue to talk to us. And we'd love to hear your comments and questions because that makes this your show. And I've put in the notes for today also um, his Pierre Predavan's book called Messages of Life from Death Row, and that's about Roger McGowan. So I've put um, the title to that in the notes for today as well so that you can tap in and and, uh, read them, make them part of your life. I've always enjoyed The Gentle Lord of Blessing, his first book. And I love his voice. It's it's very soothing just to listen to him talk. And so I hope you did enjoy that. Uh, I announced at the beginning of Dr. Tim's Hour that I did talk text with Dr. Tim earlier today. And he got to go home last night about 6.30. And he's doing well as someone who is taking good care of him. And so I continue to send loving blessings for healing for Dr. Tim, his knee. And uh, I'm going to welcome Michael at this time. Thank you, dear heart. And I certainly join you in sending blessings to Dr. Tim and his knee and his needs and and life. So appreciate all that he does to support so many people as part of this show. And we appreciate you being connected providing a set of listening ears that literally takes the energy of this understanding into different geographic locations in the world. You know, there's an interesting uh, phenomenon that occurred that when you understand the actuality of the world and the physics of the world and the quantum physics and such, it becomes quite obvious. But... There are several times in history where different people in different countries with no means of communication with each other, no means of interaction whatsoever. And, you know, the the normal world mind would call it a coincidence, but there's no coincidence about it. It's called energy. It's the way energy works. That in several different places simultaneously, People have applied for patents for new revolutionary and identical products. The same day, the same time, the same year in Italy, in America, and South America. Like, how does that happen? Well, if you introduce a frequency into the world, any mind that is ready for it, we'll be able to tap into it and pick it up. So one of the things that we're doing with this show is doing – with this show, with our radio archives, with, the, with our YouTube channel, with our app, with our 20,000-page website, what we're doing is bringing literally the energetic frequency of a higher level of understanding than the world has been stuck with for a long time bringing that to individual minds, and each individual mind who engages in it strengthens the energy of it. The physicist Yeshua 2,000 years ago said a little leavening leavens the whole loaf. He was not talking about bread. He was talking about humanity. And so just to bring this thinking into the world and then to share it with another means to double its 
energetic impact. And when he spoke of the little leavening, he was saying enough people, enough human forms that understand the truth of how creatorship works, facilitate the bringing of that understanding into physiology, into our expression. And when that energetic dynamic becomes strongly enough reinforced by being held in a critical mass number of minds, then it instantly becomes universally available. So if you think about, you know, these places where inventions have been patented. So Bill in, you know, Wisconsin gets an idea. If we listen to His name's not coming to me. We'll let that thought go. So, so Bill brings that into the world here in Wisconsin, and now the energy is available in the world. So if Henri in France is attuned to the same frequency, the fact that Bill in Wisconsin strengthened it, Henri, if he's really attuned and listening, can pick up that same energetic pattern. And then Horatio in South America catches the same vibe, the same energetic pattern. So the objective of everything that we do is to bring this to enough minds who will engage the tools that together we strengthen the existence of it energetically on planet Earth. And when critical mass happens, it will become obvious to everyone. And we're holding the space for the truth of human life, for the fact that each of us is created of the, the same essence as the creator. Each of us is created of love and have the potential to live out of that mind of love 24-7, 365 no matter what's gone on in our previous generations. And the work of achieving that goal, or I might say that purpose, engages, involves every tool that we're speaking of. The primary tool being the forgiveness process. You know, when we first, the first time I taught why is this happening to me again was about 40, hmm, thinking 44, 43 years ago. And 
brought forward this idea of first century Aramaic forgiveness, which flies in the face. I mean, I can't tell you over the years how many people have said, Michael, why don't you just use a different word? Because nobody understands forgiveness. Nobody understands that you're talking about forgiveness. It's like, that's right. The whole, you know, <laughs> the ancient scripture said, there'll come a time when the whole world will be fooled. Yes, the whole world has been fooled. Picking a different word isn't going to produce the result of shifting into truth, it's just an avoidance. So I've refused to do that and continue to bring forward a true definition of the word forgiveness, which is a tool with which you collapse the perceptual constructs of your mind that are based in any form of hostility, fear, or energy from the past. You access the underlying aberrant content, bring it forward to be exposed to the presence of love so that that energy is transmuted. And by so doing, you make a space for yourself to experience yourself as the presence of love and bring that expression into your world. That was the first workshop that started this out 40-some years ago. And then that workshop expanded and it moved into the realm of healing through relationships. And then healing through relationships moved in the direction of looking at creatorship and became on creating consciously. Moved into the arena of communication and became communication. Did you hear what I think I said? Took into account the power of understanding and establishing and acting in accord with your purpose became the next focus. And so that became purpose, personal power, and commitment. The obvious need for healing, the undoing of patterns based in hostility or fear opened up, and that became empowered to heal. So each workshop has been an expression of, an extension of that original forgiveness tool and the workshop on forgiveness. And the importance of the breath became obvious, and so that became still point breathing. And the obvious need to have a tool to access unconscious dynamics that need to be rectified for this whole thing to happen became mind shifters. So, So you can see how each tool broke out of that original foundation. And the fact that your ears, your brain, are replicating the frequency of these words right now, whether you're in Sweden or you're in Brazil, South America, whether you're in Australia, hi, Bob, I hope you're rocking and doing well. Whether you're in Canada, Russia, Germany, wherever it is, bringing the frequency into that geographic location intensifies the presence of those principles on the earth. So that's what we're here to do. And we invite you to pass it on. You know, if you're not using the forgiveness app, you know, we, have, we have an app for that, you know, and it's the only app in the world that's based in actual first century Aramaic forgiveness. It's free. Go to your app store on your phone. Type in the words heartland, one word, H-E-A-R-T-L-A-N-D, 
Aramaic, A-R-A-M-A-I-C. By the time you've got that typed in, you'll be seeing a, a red glowing heart, and that's the app. Download it. Share it. Tell other people about it. You can do the worksheet process right there on the app. The app was purposely designed to be extremely private. It only asks one thing of you. It doesn't ask if it can, you know, dial your phone. It doesn't ask if it can send text messages. It doesn't ask if it can change the content of the drive. It doesn't ask if it can make phone calls. None of that. It's got one thing. It has to be able to use the Internet. And if you give it that permission, then you've got an app that will work to bring forward forgiveness. Choose to save the product of your work as you do a worksheet. Then it will make you make one more request, and that is that you give it permission to save to the drive so that you've got somewhere to put that worksheet. So the app is there. It's free. You can go to our website. It's I'm not even sure how many pages over 20,000 it is, but it's huge. And it's basically we've efforted making a record of everything that we've discovered over the last 50-plus years of bringing forgiveness forward a la first century Aramaic Yeshua as opposed to the Greek idea of I'm going to pardon you for what's going on inside of me. So the app is there. You can do the forgiveness process right on the website, whyagain.org. Go to our site. You can actually fill in the blanks, do the worksheet, print it from there. You can print blank worksheets from the website. You can go to our YouTube channel. The main workshop, Why Is This Happening to Me Again, is now available free up until just uh, a few months ago. For the last plus years, it's been a paid workshop. You, 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 when we traveled and taught it, it was always free, and we invited people to support us with donations. But the only way it's actually been available until just a few months ago is if you wanted to buy it. Unless you attended one of our live workshops, you could buy the DVD or the CD. And we were doing the Hear My Voice book club in London, England. And we did that workshop live. So there's one version of it. And then there's a group on, a marriage group on Facebook. And the fellow who started that marriage group asked if we do a Why Is This Happening to Me Again workshop for their marriage group. And so that uh, video is available on our YouTube channel. If you just go to YouTube and type in the words Michael Rice, R-Y-C-E, that'll take you to our channel. If you start scrolling through, you'll see why is this happening to me again, three-hour, three-minute workshop. So we're constantly building more and more ways to make deeper and deeper levels of understanding of this work available and at the same time, we're doing our own work. For me personally, you know, having developed this and done my work over the last 50 years, the last two or three years has been some of the most profoundly impactful and important work that I've done in the 50 years that I've been doing my own personal work. And this isn't something that, you know, you, you do in five minutes. It's a lifetime of work. And I'm, I recognize for me personally that the deepest levels of work 
have come in just the last two or three years. So it's a process that takes time, and we're inviting every mind, heart, and being on the planet into that process. So this radio show is to be here to support you with that. So we're honored and delighted that you're here to be part of the program. And Miss Jeannie, do we have anybody in the phone queue with a hand up or anybody in the chat room with a thought for us? No, it is all quiet. We have several people on the switchboard. Press 1, you're first in line. We have 43 minutes. And if you're not on the switchboard and you're listening to the show through one of the uh, other stations that it's broadcast through, if you call into the show and our call-in number is 563-999-3581, if you call in, you'll be listening to the show directly. And then if you push 1, that will raise a hand in the control panel, and we'll be having a conversation. So 563-999-3581. Push one. Let's have a conversation about it. What's happening in your world? How are these tools impacting your life? Is it making sense? Did the uh, presentation we did over the last few days make sense on the codependence to interdependence dynamic? And are there any questions in regard to that? It's a, a rather profoundly impactful way to understand how and where our mind makes up its behaviors from, especially when somebody says, I don't know why I did that. Especially when somebody says, I'm never going to do that again, and then does it again. Wait a minute, what's going on here? Why is this happening to me? Why am I doing this to myself? Well, why is this happening to me again explains all of that in pretty complete detail. And then offers the reality management step-by-step worksheet process. Here's how you change the content of the mind. Here's how you access the deeper hidden parts of the mind, which were called the unconscious. And, you know, if you listen to a psychologist or psychiatrist today, they'll tell you that uh, 80, 90, 95, as much as maybe 98% of our thoughts are unconscious. In the ancient scriptures, the unconscious mind was called the heart. You remember they said, take care of the heart, for out of it are the issues in life. Most people are trying to take care of the other guy because they're in total denial that their own unconscious, their own heart, is involved in their lives and the issues that they keep repeating and cycling around to again and again and again. You know, I feel very blessed that the universe reserved that title, Why Is This Happening to Me Again for Me? Because it's such an obvious one and one that virtually everybody, you know, when we ask the question, kind of laughs and puts their hand up. Yeah, I've been there, done that. And the truth is, it's not really why is this happening to me again. It's why am I doing this to myself again? To recognize that whatever it is that is my why is this happening to me again experience, it's happening inside of my mind And when I recognize that I am a creator, what I hold in my mind becomes, especially in my unconscious mind, or again, in the ancient scriptures, what they called the heart, especially what I hold in my heart is going to come back and 
play out in my life again and again and again until I learn to remove it from my heart, remove it from my unconscious. And the tool for removal is forgiveness. Nothing to do with letting somebody else off the hook. Simply going inside myself and removing what never belonged. When you start to do that process, it tends to get pretty intense. Because we live in perhaps the most drugged culture that has ever existed on the planet. It's almost impossible in this culture to walk into a grocery store and buy anything to put in your body that doesn't have drugs in it. Almost impossible. We are, I would offer, the most drugged civilization that has ever existed on the earth. Caffeine, sugar, salt, nicotine, rancid oils. toxic water. They're all things that lower the vitality of the human energy system. And when the human energy system has its vitality lowered, then it can hide things from itself. The idea of this work is to bring everything out of hiding that your whole family system, no matter how far back you go, if you go back generations and generations, thousands of years, What's still being hidden in your family system that somebody, you know, 2,000 years ago didn't want to look at and didn't want to deal with? Then dynamics are moving from generation to generation to generation. So what's the work I need to do to clean that up? And that's what we're here to talk about. Any thoughts for you, Miss Jeannie? No, except um, you know the last four days anyway. Uh, you have been talking about the pseudo solutions, and I am putting those shows under the special shows, so you'll be able to go back and listen to those. And those come from a worksheet that was created, expanded uh, during the codependence intensive. It is a um, Total is just for those that are in the intensive. However, if you've listened to the shows lately, you've gotten a good piece of of those pseudo solutions and being able to identify, you know, what part of this is learned from a power person or from their power person and gets passed down and and a way to uh, get to a solution to that. And I do have two more that I need to put up there, but I've got three out there right now. That's awesome, sweetie. Thank you. So if you're out there in listener land, what's on your mind? Push one. Let's have a conversation about it. And to share about your process, anything that, uh, that's been particularly enlightening that if you share it might inspire someone else. Anything that's been particularly challenging that you need support with? Any questions about any of the tools? Any of the processes that we're talking about? So hands are up. So I'll just add, I've been working with someone, and one of the questions that they ask me is, you know, they realize 
like there is a person that they're um, physically attracted to, apparently, and they realize that it's a toxic relationship and they pull away from it and start to work on themselves, but then they want to get pulled right back into the same. They want her back, uh, even though he knows that that's a downfall for him. And so that's a, a challenge that he's been working with is, you know, it's kind of a that battle between carbon-based memory and the lust versus the spiritual part and what he knows he needs to do and the uh, conflict between those two and how to resolve that. You know, if you look at the, uh, the workshop, Healing Through Relationships, one of the things that we talk about is relationships based in matching bags of garbage and that we're drawn to people who are going to show us what it is that we need to deal with. And so the relationship itself is never actually diseased. It's that the people in the relationship are diseased. And the relationship brings those things up. And when people live in denial, whenever I think or speak as though something outside of me is the cause of what's moving inside of me, then I'm in a state of denial and I have to dissociate from the truth of what's moving in me. And so to embrace and to hold and to walk through those things and recognize that if I can't maintain the active presence of love in this situation, I have a problem. Now, most people say, well, if I am in pain, subtitle, I can't maintain the presence of love in my own physiology with this, then it must be their fault. And so the the workshop is not healing your relationships. Originally, when I started to teach it, that's what it was called. And then I realized there's no such thing as a diseased relationship. There are people who bring diseased parts of their own minds into relationships and project those parts of their minds on their partners. And that the interaction between a partner who knows how to show you what's painful in you gives you the opportunity to forgive as to that pain and you get to get free of it. And the person who's living in the mind of denial says, no, no, I don't need to be free of this. I need to be free of them. They're the problem in my life. And, of course, everybody has a right to say enough is enough. I'm out of here in relationship. But certainly, as 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 you know, Jeannie, that, that if somebody's going to walk away, better do your work or you're going to be pulling somebody else back in to do the same stuff. And that's based on the understanding that we're creators and that we create the results that happen in our lives. And when we're willing to collapse the mind's lie that it's all about somebody else, then we get to come back to cleaning up what may be dynamics that go back several generations in our bloodline. And in working the other day, he also realizes that it's the relationship that he had with his mother and that he never got settled with his mother, and so he keeps drawing in different women, and especially the most recent one, 
who shows him the exact same things that his mother showed him. And, you know, it's an opportunity once more to clean that up. And one of the things that came up was that she, his mother would not allow him to express emotions like, you know, stop crying or I'll give you something to cry about, that kind of thing. And you're not right. allowed to be angry even though I'm angry with you and uh, those type of things. And so he shut it all down. And now, actually, it took probably 15 minutes to get him to identify an emotion. He could keep coming up with thoughts, and he could identify even the feelings, you know, like the pain in the pit of his stomach or feeling like his chest was heavy or whatever. But to put a name to the emotion, he had a really challenging time doing that because he had never been allowed to express emotions or identify emotions. Mm -hmm. Stuck in his head. That's a really common way of holding thoughts that you pretend are emotions but really aren't. We have a, if you go to YouTube, there's a cute song, a gentleman that was the original music director at Heartland back 30-some years ago. And the title of the song is Stuck in My Story, My Pain and My Glory. <laughs> and most people's minds replay their stories over and over and over, relationship after relationship, circumstance after circumstance. And when people hear the title of my book, they go, yeah, yeah, people have done that to me before. Yep, that, that why is this happening to me again that's out there that comes and gets me? It's terrible. And it takes a significant amount of understanding and work to go, oh, the why is this happening to me again that I really need to deal with is the one that I impose on myself from in here. That's the why is this happening to me again. The world is just here to help to show it to me, to resonate it. That's why we, through resonance, draw people who have similar issues. The matching bag of garbage. The person who's got the fear is going to draw someone in who's got the rage. The person who's got the rage needs someone who has the fear. And so each one in that relationship situation, if they step out of blaming the other, has the opportunity to learn to forgive what it is in themselves that keeps filling their minds with this pain and trauma. As opposed to the why is this happening to me again experience being something that's imposed from the outside. And when I begin to clean up my mind energy, if you go back into the opening words in the book of John, where we're told it says, in the beginning was the word and the word became flesh. In Aramaic, that's not what it says at all. What it says is in the beginning was the mind energy and the mind energy became flesh. It would seem to be a very good thing. To begin to recognize that if I'm going through this again, that I must be involved in my life and that it isn't all somebody else. So the use of the tools basically sets up the collapse 
of the perceptual constructs that carried the lie that it's all everybody else's fault until one stands in a space naked enough and willing enough to look at their own unconscious dynamics. And then to take all forms of perception based in any quality that relates to hostility or fear and learn to remove those energetic patterns. And that's what the tool of forgiveness is for. To remove those energetic patterns. And to do that, to reach down to that depth of unconsciousness, access it and clean it out, usually takes many, many, many repeated efforts to step down into that deeper part of one's own mind, to step back the past the projection where the mind says, oh, this is being done to me by then, them, pardon me, when the truth is the energetic pattern that I'm suffering from is one that's in my own mind and in my own body. And to recognize how those patterns of thought based in pain impact physiology and turn it its vitality downward into a disease condition. To face and let go of every disease of your bloodline is one of the challenges of this work. To be able to embrace in love every interaction rather than get lost in the hostility and fear-based mind that tells you that the problem's outside of you. So that's what we're here to do, is to share that with you. And we'd love to hear your voice, what's happening in your world. Push one, let's have a conversation about it. I'm kind of in a very mellow space and ready to just get quiet and breathe with everybody if there aren't any questions. are no hands up. Say again, sweetie. I said there are no hands up. So have, have we well, completed I'm kind of, with I'm, the pseudo-solutions that we're going to do? Yes. Yeah, okay. we're complete with that. And I'm kind of in this mellow space where I'm kind of complete with what I've got to say. If, if nobody has a question or a thought... I would we rather continue up. the conversation. That's what we need. We there you go. Hey. Welcome. All right. So it's area code 360. You're on the air. Good morning. It's Julia. Hi, Julia. How are you, young lady? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm rocking, doing well. How is the impact of your still point breathing session from this past weekend unfolding in your world? Uh, um, 
It's it's still unfolding, and um, as you know, I had uh, a big blow up with my dog, and then um, my other two dogs then were sick afterwards, so I had to Ouch. take them to the vet. And um, luckily, the eldest dog is uh, he didn't he just for some reason didn't want his breakfast that morning, but he hasn't gotten any other symptoms. And they did a senior panel on him, and he's in really good health. So his kidneys, his liver, everything's functioning really well. And so that's nice to know. And uh, so then you know, like, after all your children and your family are sick, then then my body starts to (laughs) get the symptoms and is exhausted and... And so, yeah, that's that's kind of where I'm at, but um, it's all good. And uh, but I've been thinking about a lot about um, you know bringing love, conscious, uh, active, and present. And I I right. know you you talk about thinking about a newborn a newborn baby. Um, and but sometimes like when you're in the thick of it, it's kind of hard like you know to bring up that um yes that energy and so i just wanted to uh, see um and hear your thoughts about that well that's one of the reasons why we suggest that you enter into a practice of developing your relationship with yourself as love and bringing love present into your physiology you know, for me, just about every morning before I get out of bed, I've spent time just tapping into the presence of active love, extending it throughout every cell in my structure, especially if there's anywhere where there's some sort of irritation or pain or what have you, and breathing and bringing love present to my own physiology before I get up and do the world. And you know, that becomes a practice, and when that is your practice and you're challenged, it's going to be a whole lot easier to step into that space than waiting for, you know, there's that old, that old story about it's hard to remember that the objective was to drain the swamp when you're up to your bippy and alligators. <laughs> so, so rather than waiting for <laughs> the crisis to come and then say, oh, oh, I better go practice being loved now, to step into that practice on a regular daily basis where you just get quiet and just feed the presence of love, bring forward the presence of love, extend it into your own form, extend it, you know, use your mind to extend it to especially the people or situations that are a challenge for you so that if the actual challenge shows up, you've got the practice of bringing it forward, and it becomes easier and easier. So that would be one of the tools. That's the reason for the tool called My Commitment. If you go to the website, uh, you'll see under My Commitment that there's a first-person commitment, and we encourage people to use that in the mirror and tapping into themselves as love and bringing love present and and determining, you know, speaking to yourself in the mirror, I promise to trust myself enough to be willing to hear and speak the truth and treat myself lovingly, gently, and respectfully in my thoughts, my words, my actions. So you're, you're engaging in bringing that presence to your own life. And ultimately, 
you know, if we go back and listen to Yeshua 2,000 years ago, he says, in order for you to live, you've got to die. And it's like, well, how does that make sense? Well, the self that most people live out of is a false trauma-based self that's just a set of ideas stored in the mind. That self itself, by definition, edges the presence of love out of our lives. It's like struggling against that if it's strong enough is a challenge for people. You know, you, you look at that word ego, E-G-O. If we define, as the ancient scriptures do, the creator as love, God is love, E-G-O, edging God out. These states of hostility and fear that push love away from our experience. And if you look at the level of drama and trauma that most people live with in the world, it's like, where is there a space of love? And, you know, one of the things, like, for instance, with our granddaughter, she's now five, but she was, you know, I mean, right from when she first started to use words, one of the things that Jeannie and I would model for her would be I'd turn to Jeannie and say, Jeannie, why are we here? And Jeannie would say, to be love. And then she'd say, Papa, why are we here? And I'd reply, to be love. Now, at the age of five, if you ask Arya, why we're here, she's really clear. We're here to be love. And, you know, right from the get-go, that's been our practice. You know, when she's here during the day, she'll be the one who leads us through a meditation, guides us to get quiet, go inside, breathe, tap into love. Because that's what she was raised with. And sadly, a lot of stress and strain. I was talking to someone, actually a professional, just the other day, who's got a small child that's about three, and I was visiting them, and I acknowledged the uh, the sweetness and the beauty of the child. And I was kind of surprised because, you know, I mean, the child was an active child. It was around with us there, and, you know, it could be a distraction. But I acknowledged what a sweet smile this little girl had and just how, you know, her presence and her mother, a professional, came back with the words, yeah, well, they're, this, they're like this now. Well, they're, you know, three and such, so that when they get older, you don't kill them. And it's like, Mom, do you have any idea what you just said? Do you have any idea what you've revealed about your own upbringing? That you would even have that kind of mind energy related to this sweet presence of love that's your daughter. And yet that's the way of the world. That's the world mind. And sadly, we weren't all brought up from day one with mom and dad and <laughs> Nini and Papa saying to each other, why are we here to be love? And then when we find ourselves not being able to be love, to own it, to communicate about it, to clean it up, and to support her in being able to clean it up. If things come up, well, gee, sweetie, notice that you're in that upset state. And why is it that you're upset? Well, I just want I said, well, so notice that you have a goal. And so we've taught her that goals drive 
the realities in our minds. We have a game we play with her. We were doing this at about three and a half, playing the game of having different realities about any particular event in the world so she knows that reality is a product of her mind. And so she already understands that and that everybody has different realities. And so when we come along, you know, when I think about myself, uh, I wish I had been given this understanding at one, two, three, and four, how different life would have been. And or even when I first started to engage in it, you know, when I first started to engage in this work, there were a lot of people talking about love, the demonstration of it, the actual application of the tools was rare to be found. Oh, yeah, they talked about it. But when you turned around and if you violated a goal they had, they were ready to puke all over you no matter what. It's like, well, this isn't what you've been teaching. This isn't, what are you talking about? And so it's the practice. And, you know, I like to refer to what I call the rule of the three Ps. Practice, practice, practice. You just have to engage the tools until when you realize that this, what we call a mind, but is really just a multi-generational database called a body-mind unit that has generations and generations and generations and generations of thought patterns, of word patterns, of emotions in it. And sadly... For many people, not much of that was based in actual love and actually realizing that our very being is love. There are a lot of thought disorders around just about everything for most people. And so when you realize how massive this multi-generational database is and that it's governed by one law, and that law is the law of inertia, if you remember the law of inertia from physics class in high school, a body moving in a particular direction at a particular rate of speed will tend to continue to move in that direction at that rate of speed until it's acted upon by an outside force. Now, if you just look at, you know, I, I'll oftentimes invite people to do an exercise. How deeply have we been brainwashed and where did our brainwash come from? Well, let's just look at one source in our world. And I invite people to take a piece of paper and sit down in front of the TV set and draw a one-inch margin on the left side of the page. So if you've got an eight-and-a-half by 11 page, there's one inch on the left, and then there's seven-and-a-half inches on the right and an eight-and-a-half by 11 page. And I invite people to turn their TV on and spend no more than three minutes on any channel and just flip from channel to channel to channel to channel to channel. And every time that you hear someone speak a word on that television set that actually refers to human life as love, to us as the presence of love, put a check mark in the one-inch column on the left-hand side of the page. And every time you hear a word based in hostility or fear, put a check mark on the right-hand seven-inch, seven-and-a-half-inch space. If people sit down and do that exercise, they'll fill pages and pages and pages and pages with check marks on the right side of the page, and they won't have one one-inch column filled in on the left of words based in love. 
You listen to Yeshua and he says, the power of life and death is in our words. They're the frequencies that we engage in and that's the way we, we're, I, I mentioned the other day, that's the way we're spelled. Now they talk about spelling in school as though it's how you put letters together, but you think about it and most people are put in a state of a spell and sadly, the world's dynamic, I mean, just watch the news, watch the TV, watch, you know, watch what's going on in the culture. And so much of it is based in hostility or fear, and people are put under the spell of hostility and fear. And, you know, they're told just horrible things about themselves. I can remember back about hmm, probably 15 years ago, Jeannie and I were in Fort Lauderdale. And we were invited by some people to go to a church that we probably wouldn't normally go to as a big, uh, well-known televangelist-type church. And we went, and there were about 5,000 members there. And there's there's a service, and there were about 5,000 people gathered. And if I remember correctly, I think it was 13 kids that they were inducing into membership in the church. It was like they were, this particular service they were opening with, bringing these kids into the church. And it was absolutely appalling because here's a church supposedly teaching about this man Yeshua and the presence of love as life and, and that that's what it's based in. And the first thing they made in order for these kids to become part of the congregation, they had to stand up to them at the microphone and tell this group of 5,000 or so people who were there joining with them and supporting them that they were sinners. That was the proclamation. That was the entryway, the verbal ascent that was required to become part of this teaching, supposedly based in the man named Yeshua, I thought about love. So when you look at the inertia-bound propensities of the world, yes, it can be a challenge to step into that state of connecting with yourself as love, making real the truth that you are made of love, and forgiving everything unlike that until it's just natural, first nature. But that, to me, is the work that's required to do that. Does that fit? Does that make sense for you? Yes, yes, that was awesome. And um, I, I, you know, I think about like Hebb's law. You know, like what fires wires. And so, the more frequent that you're doing that, you're going to build up new data and loving data. You know, like doing that first thing in the morning, and then also doing that. The commitment, reading the commitment, and um, not just for yourself, but the one that's for others also. And um, I just think it's so beautiful what you have been teaching your granddaughter. And I just, you know, really would have loved to known of this work when um, my daughter was born and uh, that I could have presented it to her. And, um, you know, my big 
the thing I did when she would kind of lose her temper and stuff was um, I would just embrace her and I would sing to her, you know, love feels better than anger. And um, so, but, you know, I just, I didn't have um, these tools that you have that are so, so amazing and awesome. And I'm so grateful to have finally come to find these and implement them into my life. And um, and then, we, you know, I was like crying tears. Like my, it just opened my heart so much when you said that about your granddaughter. And then you said that about the woman who said that about three-year-olds, you know, being cute because then you won't want to kill them. It's like my heart just went so like, Yes, like, oh, my God, what are you saying? And, and, you know, for her, that was funny. It's like, lady, that's not funny. I I didn't know her well enough. She's a professional. I didn't know her well enough to say, you know, that's really not funny. And you better do some work around this violence toward your child, you know. What kind of parenting, what, what happened that you would even think such a thing? And, you know, that's yeah. the kind of stuff that virtually, and, and, and I'm speaking of myself here too. Aria has been my teacher, and she has taught me on a whole new level. I mean, I had some of the tools when my kids were small. You know, they're in their 40s now. And so I had some of the tools when they were small, but I didn't understand it on this level. I wish I had understood it on this level back when they were small. But nobody had them. I couldn't, you know. I looked, I looked, and I looked, and I looked, and nobody had them in a way that, here, here's how you can do it. And to me, that's one of the reasons why we, for instance, do this radio show, why our tools are all out there available free to anybody that wants to put them to work. And the radio show's here to ask questions, to get refinements and support, because it's time for the game to change for all of us all of humanity because no matter who it is you know people who you know in the culture that most people would think of and the first thing they do would be sending violent thoughts to them because of the violence that they do it's like to me it's like i wouldn't want to live in that violent person's body because what have they been through what kind of trauma what's happened to them and can we have compassion even if you know, if they've offended or damaged us, can we have compassion in recognizing that's somebody who's in deep pain and what's needed is not punishment. You know, we live in a, I mean, there's another big insanity in our culture. We have a penal system. We have a system of penance. Let's see, if you've done something bad, we'll inflict pain on you so you'll get better. Like, hello? Is anybody home? Who got better at functioning as love by having pain and punishment inflicted upon them? Yes, I think we need, for instance, a system of prisons because there are people who just are not safe in the culture. 
But do they need to be penance colonies? No. I think we need a system of prisons to protect people against themselves and, yes, to protect society against people who are violent. But we need spaces for those people that are healing spaces that we can shift this energy of violence and put an end to it in the culture and on the planet. It's like it's time for that to happen. And when you realize that we're all, each and every one of us is working out of a multi-generational database that's got, you know, who knows how many hundreds and hundreds of generations within, and you start looking at the history of the culture, the trauma, the pain, the wars, the the abuses, the the, you know, political insanity that's been done, like, when you realize that each one of us is carrying that within our own genes, the cleanup becomes quite a challenge. It's quite a project to do. And so the objective of this work is to make it available 24-7, 365 to every mind, heart, and being on the planet so that everyone has the opportunity to step into, it's like, you know, I've spent over 50 years full-time, and when I say full-time, I mean double full-time, developing this work, but who's going to do that? You know, there aren't many people that are going to spend the time to develop the, the understanding, the brain cells for application and such. And so that's one of the reasons why we're here to answer questions and support and put it out there so that it's accessible to literally to everyone and then whoever chooses to support it chooses to support it. You know, when, when we traveled, one of the things that we would do is, you know, I mean, for 40 some years, we would go anywhere on the planet we were invited. We'd present our workshops free and we'd pay our own expenses. And, and at the end of each workshop, we let people know the reason the workshop was free is because we're committed to giving it away. Whether you've got money or not, it's irrelevant. Here, take it. Please use it and pass it on. And if it fits in your life, support us because that's how we keep it going. We, we do it for free, but, you know, we haven't figured out how to do it for nothing. <laughs> and so each person that, you know, buys a DVD or makes a donation or pays for a workshop helps us to keep building and keep moving this around the globe. And so, and we thank you for your support in that. Well, I am really, really, really deeply grateful that I have found you guys. And uh, it is my pleasure to support you in any way that I can. And um, I'm, you know, this is my new gospel and I'm preaching it to all my friends and family. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and it's really such a blessing, and um, I really liked uh, the first interview also, and I, I purchased a book called 365 Blessings to Heal Myself and the World by Pierre um, Praderand. Yeah, awesome. And yeah, yeah. So um, this is just such a joy and has enhanced... Um, the quality of my life, for sure. Sweet. And so, well, thank you thank so you much. for saying thank you. Yeah, thank you. Awesome. Can't say it enough. All right. I'm so grateful. All right, blessings. Okay, well, blessings. the show's going to cut thank us you. off any second, so thank you, everybody, for lending us your ears and being part of the conversation, and have a blessed one.
Take care. Bye-bye.